When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. It is nothing in the case of Biden on Thursday, a cynical, sick political stunt by the president. And frankly, it is beyond disgraceful. Uh, we will be at the border with President Trump on Thursday. Hey, what? Uh, I'm sorry, Sean. Did you say something about beyond disgraceful? Fox attains peak levels of irony and hypocrisy as President Biden and mega cult leader Donald Trump make dueling visits to our southern border. And Teray joins me to dissect the bizarre, baffling love-hate relationship between the hip-hop community and Donald Trump. But we begin tonight with the highest court in our land. Engraved above the oversized bronze doors on the Supreme Court's main entrance are the words, equal justice under law. For nearly 100 years, those words have welcomed every person who entered. Those words have real meaning, or at least they are supposed to. The Supreme Court's capitulation to Donald Trump yesterday makes those words ring hollow. It's not just that the Supreme Court waited more than two weeks after Trump made his appeal for them to make their decision to take up his claim of absolute presidential immunity. And it's not just that they won't hear it until April, giving Trump exactly what he wants, more delays. It's it's also how they're framing the case. In their one-page order, the justices say they will be debating just one question, quote, whether and if so to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to have involved official acts during his tenure in office? That involve official acts? Meaning, They're taking seriously the idea that overthrowing the government was part of Donald Trump's official act as president. They are actually going to debate that. Why? The motive seems clear to slow walk this decision. It may very well be that ultimately the court does not find in favor of Trump. But it would nonetheless give Trump a victory. The court could have set an expedited schedule in the case. Remember, the Bush v. Gore case took all of four days to run its course. Instead, the court will provide a de facto presidential immunity to Trump by potentially pushing the case until after the election. And it could impact some of Trump's other impending trials as well. Trump is claiming a presidential immunity defense both in his other federal case regarding the classified documents and in the Georgia state election interference case. And while no decisions have yet been made in either case, we could see the Supreme Court's decision giving Trump a way to further delay those as well. Once again, Trump can pull a Houdini and get out of accountability, at least before the presidential election. One might wonder, let the Supreme Court justices get out of all this. Well, with the two most conservative justices, Thomas and Alito, reaching an age that normally would signal retirement, One might imagine that they would prefer to do so under a Republican president to maintain the court's conservative majority in perpetuity by ensuring that they will be replaced by much younger versions of themselves. That notion was also considered to play a factor in Bush v. Gore, which handed the White House to George W. Bush. And remember, 
Three of the current sitting justices, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Coney Barrett, worked on that case as lawyers for the Bush side. And the last remaining justice on the court from that decision, Justice Clarence Thomas, is married to a woman who vociferously argued for and interacted with Trump's inner circle, including his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to support the idea that the election was stolen and that Trump's effort to, quote unquote, stop the steal was an official act. And now Trump's lawyers are going to come before the court and make Ginny Thomas's arguments in front of her husband. What the Supreme Court is doing is incentivizing Trump to become like the strongman he has long admired and remain president for life. The idea being that he is untouchable as long as he is the president. Perhaps Trump will ask for some tips from Hungary's authoritarian leader, Viktor Orban, when he privately visits with Trump next week at Mar-a-Lago. We all know Trump's affinity for the other global dictators like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. And who's going to stop Trump from staying in the White House until nature calls him? Congress? Don't make me laugh. We all know there is no longer any checks and balances. That's gone. Trump essentially owns the Supreme Court's conservatives who are doing his bidding. Full stop. In Congress, you have a House speaker who is in his pocket. With Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell stepping down, you're going to get a senator who is even more willing than Mitch to drink the MAGA Kool-Aid. So the courts won't stop him. The Congress won't stop him. That leaves it in the hands of the American people on November 5th. We're not going to be saved by any of these other bodies, folks. And the kicker to all of this, we already know that Trump's claim of of absolute immunity is complete nonsense because there is a pretty strong historical precedent to rely on. Now, therefore, I, Gerald R. Ford, president of the United States, pursuant to the pardon power conferred upon me by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, have granted, and by these presents do grant, a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. That's right. President Gerald Ford would not have had to offer Richard Nixon a pardon if he was supposedly immune from criminal prosecution, which he was about to face. And how else do we know that Trump's whole presidential immunity defense is garbage? Well, we heard it directly from his own lawyer during his second impeachment hearing in 2021. After he's out of office, you go and arrest him. So there is no opportunity where the president of the United States can run rampant in in January, the end of his term, and just go away scot-free. The Department of Justice does know what to do with such people. There is only the text of the Constitution which makes very clear that a former president is subject to criminal sanction after his presidency for any illegal acts he commits. I am joined now by Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal correspondent, Catherine Christian, NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst and former assistant district attorney in the Manhattan DA's office. And David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with the Republican Party. Lisa, I'm going to go to you and let you talk because you were so great on this yesterday. I was watching every single one of your TV hits and just saying, please get that lady in front of me so I can talk to her. Because you made the point that I repeated tonight, 
The, 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 the single question that these justices are now going to debate is an absurd one. You just saw Gerald Ford. The idea that there's even a question of whether overthrowing the government is an official act of the president. I'm going to let you talk. Well, I think that that's right, Joy, that it is an absurd question. And it's particularly absurd the way that the justices have framed it in their order yesterday. When the Supreme Court hears a case, they define the issues before them in something called a question or questions presented. Some cases have multiple questions, but this case only has one. And the way that it's framed is somewhat telling because it says— whether and if so, to what extent a former president enjoys immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct he conduct alleged, alleged to involve his official acts. And, you know, yesterday I was really troubled by the alleged. But having talked about this last night with Christy Greenberg, who's a former federal prosecutor, she pointed out to me that the whether and if so, to what extent should also trouble us to some degree, because both Tanya Chutkin and the D.C. Circuit found that there is no immunity for a former president for official acts, full stop. Now, the Supreme Court, in the way that they frame the question, seems to be suggesting that they want to parse that a little bit, that they want to carve out some form of official immunity, and more so that they want to allow perhaps the former president to define what is and is not official acts rather than allow the Department of Justice to determine what that is based on the allegations of the indictment. So you're right. I think this is somewhat farcical. I'm not sure why the court is taking this case, if not to at least partially reverse the D.C. Circuit and make it all the more difficult for Tanya Chutkin or anybody else other than Juan Mershon here in New York State to try any of the criminal cases involving former President Trump before this election. They're trying to re-elect him so that Alito and and Jenny Thomas's husband can retire. I, I don't see any other answer to it. Uh, I'm going to come to you, Catherine Christian, because what's going to wind up happening is they're going to make these arguments in front of the husband of one of the insurrectionists. So I assume that he's one of the people who agrees that it is part of an official act. But I want to ask you a, a sort of separate question, because it does seem to me that this is ensuring that Donald, that the only questions that the American people will have answered before the election are whether or not Donald Trump paid a porn star because the Alvin Bragg case is going to go forward, whether or not he is an adjudicated sex pest, which he is. He owes $83.8 million for sexual assault. Right. And whether or not he is a liar about his wealth, which he is because he's been adjudicated and the clock is tick, tickety, tick, tick, ticking on that. And he owes a lot of money, half of, of a billion dollars. So the American people will literally know everything they already knew about Donald Trump in 2016 or they should have known. They're not going to know any of the important things like, for instance, did he steal classified documents? Here are the proposed schedules for that case. Catherine Jack Smith has proposed July 8th as a trial date to begin. Donald Trump and his lawyer, Dale Oliveira, have proposed August 2nd. I will note that July 8th is during the month of the um, Republican convention, and mm -hmm. August is when it's over, and he's probably the nominee. Your thoughts? Exactly. And it's, it's interesting that basically the only cases that—and they involve money, except for the Manhattan DA's office case—that have held Donald Trump accountable involve his pocketbook. You know, the civil fraud case uh, with Judge Ngoran, 
uh, Gene Carroll, and he was found liable, yes, for sexual assault, which is sexual abuse in New York is sexual assault and defamation. So those cases, and we don't know the verdict that's going to happen in Manhattan DA's office case. It's hard to fathom that any one of the nine justices are actually going to rule that trying to overturn the election in several states could be considered an official act. But they took the case. And I can only think they took the case because, as a friend of mine said, when I said they wouldn't take the case, of course, they're going to take the case. They want to have the last word. They're going to say, we're the Supreme Court. We're the one who's going to decide this. That, to me, is the only reason why I think they took the case or the five people who voted for it to be to, to grant certiorari. Or they want to take the case because they want to drag it out to make sure that they are replaced by 30-year-old versions of Alito and Thomas. I'm saying it. I'm not putting that on you all. But that, to me, seems like the Occam's razor answer. I'm going to go to you, David Jolly. Because for the voters on the Republican side, no new questions are going to be answered, it seems. Even if this case started in July or August, as these two lawyers have said, we're talking about this all dragging all toward November. So by the time the election comes, people who want to say Trump is simply being persecuted will have the evidence being that, the, that, they're, that they're, they're, they're bleeding him financially, that the state of New York is bleeding him financially, that E. Jean Carroll is taking him financially. That's all they will know. It will not be determined to the satisfaction of people who might be open to the facts and to the truth that this man did steal classified documents, that he did try to orchestrate a coup. They've even somehow jimmied together a way to stall the Georgia election interference case. No one will have that answered. What does that mean for us, for our democracy, David, if that those questions are not answered by November? Joy, I'm not sure that any case but for the Jack Smith conspiracy to defraud the American people over the election, I'm not sure any of the others really have an impact on voter behavior. Perhaps in some of those persuadable voters, they're reminded in those other cases why they don't like Donald Trump. So maybe it does influence them towards Joe Biden. But I think the Jack Smith conspiracy case, the one that the court, the high court has now decided to decide the immunity question on could have a real impact. I think it could, if there is a conviction in that, it could swing the election towards Joe Biden. And I think that's why there are so many hard questions at the high court tonight. Look, in theory, I would like to see the Supreme Court decide this case because I think this question needs finality and to no longer be debated. But the way they have handled it now feeds into all the questions on timing. There's no reason that the schedule they set needs to be the schedule. If you look at the Nixon case and you look at Bush v. Gore, they can handle this immediately and resolve this. And then the word salad that they issued that you all have talked about, the uh, alleged official acts, the allegation (laughs) is that these were not official acts. Somebody needs to tell the high court the allegation in the indictment is that these were not official acts. They actually adopted Donald Trump's language in suggesting that they will consider whether or not these were official acts. And that gets to the danger of this. We have every reason to question now the high court, just as we have before, and whether or not they are trying to tilt this election in favor of the person who nominated them. Um, Let's talk about maybe some solutions, Lisa Rubin. Could Jack Smith simply charge Donald Trump with something else? Say, all right, now I'm charging you with insurrection. Straight up, same thing he was charged. Like Xerox, the old word, photocopy the indictment in Colorado. I'm charging with that now. Play with that. Yeah, I'm not sure, Joy, because I think that any new charges on a federal level would still be susceptible to this immunity defense so that if the court 
is going to consider whether a former president is immune from criminal prosecution for any acts that he committed essentially while he was in office, which is how Trump would define official acts, then we're still back to square one. I also want to point out that the date that Trump has proposed to try Judge Cannon's case is itself highly problematic, because by proposing August 12th, it almost seems like he's being reasonable, but he's not. If you read the entirety of the submission tonight that he made to Judge Cannon, he is all but inviting her to stay that case for a litany of reasons, including but not limited to the outstanding question of presidential immunity. But in the alternative, he's offering her this August 12th date. And what is magical about August 12th? Not only will Will he be the nominee by then? But by starting a trial that he estimates will take eight to 10 weeks on August 12th, guess who else would be blocked from ever trying her case before the election? Tanya Chutkin, no matter what the Supreme Court does. And Catherine, he's even managed by having one of his buddies cook up this case against Fonnie Willis. They've gotten into the state case that was untouchable for a pardon. That now is being stalled under the immunity defense theory. It's amazing. He's managed to wriggle out of everything but what's in New York. Yes, it's his delaying tactics have worked and he has won. I mean, won in that these it's highly unlikely, not impossible, but highly improbable that either federal case is going to be tried before the November election day. It's just I never want to say never, but I just don't see either of those cases being tried. And quite frankly, the Georgia case, which has now gone sideways with personal issues involving the D.A. So the only case will be. The Manhattan New York. case at the end of this month. We are out of time, but very quickly, David Jolly, how many days would it take for Donald Trump to fill the two seats which uh, uh, Alito and Clarence Thomas oh. will vacate on Inauguration Day? How many days? Uh, they'd have it done in 10 days. But yes. this comes down to every race matters, including control of the Senate, and voters yep. will go into this election eyes wide open. And watch Aileen Cannon be on that list. At Lisa Rubin, Catherine Christian, David Jolly, thank you very much. Watch it happen. Y'all better vote. Up next on The Readout, dueling visits to the southern border highlight the stark differences between President Biden and Donald Trump's visions for U.S. immigration policy. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
We saw a stark contrast today as President Biden and Donald Trump made dueling trips to the U.S.-Mexico border. President Biden was in Brownsville, Texas, where he spoke about the bipartisan border deal that would allot $20 billion for border security and add more Border Patrol personnel, immigration judges and asylum officers. You know, the bill full of things Republicans support, but killed anyway, simply because Trump wanted to campaign on the issue. Biden urged Republicans to reconsider and at one point even directly called out his predecessor. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know. It's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Meantime, Donald Trump was in Eagle Pass, Texas, where he gave a speech full of fear mongering that was at times just flat out incoherent. These are the people that are coming into our country and they're coming from jails and they're coming from prisons and they're coming from mental institutions and they're coming from insane asylums. And they're terrorists. They're being led into our our country. Nobody explained to me how allowing millions of people from places unknown, from countries unknown, who don't speak languages. We have languages coming into our country. We have nobody that even speaks those languages. They're they're truly foreign languages. Nobody speaks them. Notably, Texas Governor Greg Abbott was right by Trump's side throughout the day, even as his state is currently grappling with the largest wildfire in Texas history. I'm joined now by California Democratic Congressman Robert Garcia, a member of the House Oversight and Homeland Security Committees and at the Subcommittee on National Security and the Border and MSNBC contributor Paula Ramos. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to see if you understand what the president was talking about. I mean, I, look, first, I think that what's, one thing that's clear is that Donald Trump has completely lost his mind. Yeah. Uh, his, vis- his visit at the border was racist. Former, was president. former, former president. president. Xenophobic. Uh, Donald Trump wants no solutions. Um, and it's, it's really a shame how he has made his rhetoric so anti-immigrant, which in my opinion is anti-American. I think the president is trying to actually get solutions. He is actually out the border. He's working with Democrats and Republicans. He's proposed an immigration plan actually on his first day in office, which we should take up in the Congress. Um, and he's actually trying to get resources to the border in a way that actually works. But Donald Trump, who controls the entire MAGA House in Congress, doesn't want anything to do with actually helping people, solving the asylum crisis, solving the border challenges. He just wants chaos, division, and to get himself reelected. Has any of your colleagues on the other side of the aisle admitted that they really actually did like the bill that they killed? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's other Republicans that actually would like to see some sort of immigration plan done, but they bow down to their orange master, which is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's racism on this issue should be rejected by every American. Um, Paula, talk about the real issue, because there there is an actual real issue that, you know, there's a chart here that um, The Guardian put up and they talked about the surge in border crossings. And you can see the little line that happens when it starts. It starts during the pandemic, which Donald Trump completely mismanaged. And the mismanagement of the pandemic is the undertold story, I think, of the Bush, of the Trump administration. A million people died, but you also saw this massive surge at the border. So there is a surge. Is there any solution being implemented since the president is being constrained from doing so by Congress? 
I think what's really happening, and I think what everyone is sort of getting wrong is when we talk about the crisis, what crisis, to your point, are we talking about? And who is in crisis? Are Americans in crisis or are asylum seekers in crisis? And I think the reality is the facts are that if you just look at the other side of the border, right, as we speak, there are thousands of asylum seekers that are waiting in limbo in some of the most dangerous Mexican border towns, right? As we speak, cartel kidnappings are up. Sexual violence is up in just in the state of Tamaulipas, which is exactly directly in front of where President Biden was today. Just in that state, sexual assaults towards migrants went up by 70 percent in 2023. So that is a crisis. Then if you look at the American side of the border, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that immigrants are criminals. None. Just look at the Texas Department of Public Safety's own data. Look at what Stanford University is saying. And it is very clear that they say we want to go there. They say that native borns are more likely to commit crimes than immigrants. What is a crisis, though, is the fact that extremism is up. The great replacement theory is up. And that is a crisis. So I think I think it's just really important to place the audience in this reality of what is this crisis we're talking about? We may be feeling it. We may be perceiving it, but it's not real. But what, what people are reacting to is the visuals, right, Congressman? They're seeing more migrants, for, for instance, in New York in shelters. And it's making people mad because people are saying, why are people spending money to feed them when they should be spending money domestically? And there also there's a perception that there's this demographic change being forced upon the American people. But the people at the border that are getting held up because there's really no immigration judge system. There are Ukrainians trying to come through. There are people who are from China trying to come through. There are people from Haiti. It's not the number of people who are actually from Mexico or Mexican has di- diminished from like 60% to 30%. So we're not talking about people from Mexico. We're talking about people from Guatemala, from Peru, but we're also talking about people from Asia and Europe. That's exactly right. I mean, first, when people should think about immigrants, they should talk about folks like myself and my family. I mean, we immigrated to the U.S. I was a young kid. I'm a member of the U.S. Congress. Now. Right. I'm an educator. Immigrants add to the economy. We know that Paolo is right. Immigrants are less likely to actually commit crimes than native-born citizens. And they in all this come country. here wanting to work. They, all they want is to work. They want to work. They want to work hard. They want to be part of our community. Most of them are, are fleeing horrific conditions in their home countries, and they're coming for help to seek asylum. The issue right now is that we need to create an asylum system that is fair, that's humane, and yes, Democrats also want border security. Sure. We also want technology. We want to support the border agents to do the right thing. We want a process that actually supports the legal system for folks. But we also need both things. People have to remember that immigration is part of what built this country, and we've yeah. got to get back to that. Absolutely. And Paula, I mean— And yet what you see is Republicans and specifically Donald Trump being more trusted on the border, even though he's literally saying they want to build camps. They want to bring back, quote unquote, Operation Wetback. They want to do mass deportation, which would mean basically stopping anyone who looks Latino and saying you are probably an undocumented immigrant. Get out like they want these draconian wild policies. Absolutely. I mean, I think we know what a Trump point. 2.0 2.0 White House would look like, right? These unprecedented mass deportations, mass raids. And so I think I'm going to say something controversial. I think we are all convinced that President Biden being tough on immigration is the way to go, right? We think that is the way to beat independence. However, let's remember that in 2020, one of the main reasons why President Biden made that closing argument is when he was able to distance himself from Trump's cruelty, right? Four days before the election, what did he say? He said, I will be the one that will undo this cruelty at the border. That's right. for me. And it worked. 
And so I think we have to be very careful in understanding whether this sort of tough on immigration strong hand will work. Yeah. It may be the short term solution, but the long term solution is a little bit more complicated. But that may be a better story for Biden. I, 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 I'll give you I'll go you one better. I give you Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush. Roll them. Do you think the children of illegal aliens should be allowed to attend Texas public schools free? Or do you think that their parents should pay for their education? Today, if those people are here, uh, I would reluctantly say I think they would they would get whatever it is that they're, you know, what the society is giving to their neighbors. But it has the problem has to be solved. The problem has to be solved because with as we have kind of made illegal some kinds of labor that I'd like to see legal. We're doing two things. We're creating a whole society of really honorable, decent, family-loving people that are in violation of the law. And secondly, we're exacerbating relations with Mexico. As a beacon of freedom and opportunity that draws the people of the world, no country on earth comes close. This, I believe, is one of the most important sources of America's greatness. They both won. The last guy who spoke is considered the greatest Republican president, and he did straight-up amnesty. I mean, where are those Republicans now? Mm. Where, I mean, I'm a U.S. citizen today because of Ronald Reagan signing that bill that created a pathway to citizenship for millions in this country. Where are those Republicans today? I mean, today we have Donald Trump, the most anti-American, anti-immigrant president that we have seen in, yep. in, in modern history, and he's leading his party to a darker path and, and one that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's the funny thing. If a Republican talk like that right now, they might even be able to win the popular vote. Maybe they ought to change the course. Congressman Robert Garcia, Paula Ramos, thank you both very much. We'll be right back. The desperation in Gaza has taken an even more disturbing turn today, with Israel being accused of opening fire on starving Gazan civilians gathering to wait for food aid. You're now seeing aerial footage showing numerous people surrounding trucks. Now, we'll note this footage is from the Israeli military, the IDF, who say that dozens of people were killed and injured due to pushing, trampling and being run over by the aid truck. The Gaza Health Ministry has a different story. They say Israeli forces opened fire on a crowd of Palestinians who were hoping to get food from those trucks. At least 112 people were killed and more than 760 injured. NBC News has not independently verified the proposed death toll, and it's not clear how many were killed from gunfire or from the ensuing panic. Palestinian officials called the incident a massacre, saying Israeli troops opened fire on a crowd waiting for food and flour. A U.S. official also confirmed to NBC News that the Biden administration is considering airdropping aid into Gaza, given the dire need for humanitarian assistance and the slower pace of land deliveries. This comes as the U.N. says a sizable portion of Gaza's population is starving. Joining me now is Naira Haq, a former State Department advisor and White House senior director, as well as a columnist for MSNBC. Naira, always good to see you. So Ramesh Raja Singham, who's a U.N. humanitarian officer, told the U.N. Security Council on Tuesday that at least a quarter of Gaza's residents were now one step away from famine and that one in six children under two in northern Gaza was suffering from acute malnutrition. Putting that, putting, putting, putting that context on the table, what do you make of this incident of people rushing for food aid and being either shot or trampled? The rushing for food aid is not unusual. It's very common in conditions where people are desperate and starving. This is something that humanitarian actors and even military support have had to deal with in Somalia and Afghanistan, all sorts of places around the world. So that is 
par for the course when you are trying to deliver aid to people. And there's many ways to manage that. Typically, it's not managed with dropping missiles. And what about dropping food? There was a humanitarian that I emailed with earlier today who said that he found it ridiculous, the idea that the most powerful nation in the world, the United States, would be down to dropping food from helicopters when the United States could simply push Israel using our leverage to make the food trucks go through. The food trucks are being stopped right now by Israel. Well, this is the challenge of the United States having to play uh, allies with Israel as well as allies with Egypt and not necessarily having a what they see as a credible interlocutor on the Palestinian side. And these, this desire to not hold Netanyahu accountable for what the decisions he is making as a, frankly, undemocratic leader um, is, is part of the problem right now, because Israel is not in a normal situation. This is not the Israel of 15 years ago. This is Netanyahu's Israel, where there is not a clear objective to what is going to happen. This is an Ehud Olmert's Israel that was trying to make a deal with the Palestinians with Yasser Arafat. It's very different. And Prime Minister Ehud Olmert came out saying that Netanyahu's agenda is a problem for Israel's standing in the region and its longevity as a state and as a democracy. So this is a conversation inside Israel, but it's not the same conversation that we're seeing in the United States of being able to challenge how we supply military weapons to other countries that people can see are committing violations with them. Uh, What do you make as a former State Department official of this apparent peace deal that they're trying to sort of cobble together? The Pentagon can't even seem to agree on what the death toll numbers are. They first, they say they they agree with the 25,000 and some are saying it's more like 30,000. So that's not an agreement. But the U.S. is trying to be the big interlocutor on a peace deal that would be hostage release for a ceasefire. You you need parties on either side that see a value in a two-state solution. And this is fundamentally going to be the problem with Netanyahu having told people that his goal is to get to Rafah and eradicate Hamas. Uh, Neither one of those actually helps long term with the extremist threat in Israel's uh, south. And then you have the uh, Hamas, which is deadly set against Israel ever being recognized truly in the region. So how is the United States supposed to bring those two groups together? And you you bring in Qatar, you bring in other allies. But the fundamental challenge is the narrative that Netanyahu and Hamas are working right now, which is to constantly delegitimize the other side. And in the in the interim, uh, Palestinian children are starving. Yes. And 25,000 people more up to 30,000 people have died. The world is seeing this. We know these numbers, but we still argue over calling it the Hamas-run Gaza or the Hamas-run health ministry as if, like, you know, a terrorist organization um, and the people who are giving out numbers of people dying, like, that credibility is always still a question mark to the point where the United States— Secretary of Defense is walking back the fact that the U.S. government knows yeah. that this is happening and is still calling it the Hamas-run data. Nayir uh, Haq, my friend, thank you very much. Always appreciate you being here. And coming up, why, why is a hip-hop star doing a video unboxing boosting Donald Trump's Coup Force One sneakers? And no, I'm not talking about Kanye. After the break, my friend Tere will join me and we will ask whether this particular rap star might want to lean back Lean back. We'll be right back.
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. If there is one true thing that's been said about the Trump era, it is friend of the show Rick Wilson's contention and the title of his book, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Another thing that's true is that once upon a time, Donald Trump was one of the most referenced figures in hip hop music. He was name dropped more than 300 times in popular rap songs, with his name standing in for the idea of extreme wealth, bling, success. But when he ran for president in 2016, those rappers, including some who knew him personally and even partied with him on occasion at Mar-a-Lago, weren't exactly lining up to endorse him. Only one big name rapper did, sort of. Kanye West said right after the election that if he had voted, he would have voted for Trump. Then he became pals with Trump, including an Oval Office photo session with Ye wearing a MAGA hat and ranting. Things kind of went sideways for Ye's public reputation after that for a number of reasons, the luncheon with the Nazi being one of them, and that weird moment with that Candace lady in the White Lives Matter shirts. But it seemed like a lot of other rappers saw what happened with Trump and took it to heart to maintain their distance. Fast forward to today, when Donald Trump is now an adjudicated sexual assaulter. He's been fined $450 million and counting for his fraudulent business practices in New York, meaning the whole reason hip-hop loved him was a lie, plus those 91 criminal counts. But like, meanwhile, just days ago, and oh, I'm sorry. And meanwhile, Trump just days ago said that black people like him specifically because of his indictments and his mugshot. And days before that, an obscure right wing Fox commentator said that black people will vote for Trump because they love the sneakers. They just love sneakers. So it seems like a really weird time for any rapper, any rapper at all to jump on board with anything associated with the Trump brand. And yet, just this week, rapper Fat Joe seemed to do just that. To show him the box first, what it says. Friends and family, there's only 50 of these. I gotta get my hands on him. Once again, I'm not a Trumper. I dislike Trump. I'm not voting for him, not now, not never. But I'm a sneaker collector into the art, so I had to find these. I'm joined now by Tere, host of Masters of the Game and creative director at The Grio. And I'm, I'm so glad you're available because I really want to talk to you about this, Tere, because you've interviewed a lot of these guys. You know, Fat Joe, you know these guys. There yeah. are a few things that were weird about that live. Number one, the fact that he had a branded box, which kind of said to mm. me that Trump maybe is sending these to people so that they will do an unboxing, maybe. I don't know if that's how you, it struck you, but it struck, the whole thing struck me as odd. He said, I dislike Trump. A lot of people thought he said, I just like Trump. He said, I dislike Trump. Why do you yeah, think that yeah. he decided to do this whole unboxing of Trump sneakers? I mean, they're not quality sneakers. So, 
No. When I first saw Joe doing this, I was like, no, not Joe. Guy from the Bronx, been part of hip hop culture for a very long time. But as he explains it, he is a collector. He's into sneakers. He does not care about Trump. He doesn't like Trump. He doesn't support Trump. The guy, Joe, has that Joe has like two, three thousand pairs of sneakers. He's a collector. He wants to have all the sneakers out there. I'm sure he has the Marty McFlies. He's got every sort of rare sneaker that you could get. So it's about being a collector, not about Mm -hmm. supporting Trump. He's saying he doesn't like Trump, but like he wants to have all the sneakers. But there's a thing that's sort of implicit in your question. The hip hop that you and I grew up on in the 80s and 90s was political. It was Chuck mm-hmm. D, Tupac, Karis One, Poor Righteous Teachers. They were political. They were making critiques of America, critiques of the president. We don't have that sort of hip hop anymore. And yeah. I'm not saying they're dumb. There's a lot of extraordinarily intelligent rappers, but there's a lot of money in the game now. There's a lot of yeah. branding in the game now. And it's really about getting people's attention on you. There's not a lot of politicized hip hop like the sort that we grew up on. So expecting hip hop in general to have a political response, which we grew up on, is it's not what the game is doing now. But it's not even just, I mean, look, I worked, like I said, toward the end of the Obama campaign. Like there were there were hip hop artists, including Jay-Z, who were like openly stumping for Obama. Right. I mean, you know, Will I Am is not like a traditional hip hop artist, but he supported Obama, like made his 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 speech into a hit song. I mean, I remember interviewing um, Luther Campbell, Uncle Luke, like before Donald Trump ran. And that was the era when it was probably safe if you were really going to come out for him. And he just talked about the fact that, you know, hip hop artists used to be at Mar-a-Lago. They didn't like have some big objection to Trump. But I know that n- you didn't see a flood of rappers, even though they did know him and knew who he was and referenced him. They weren't referencing him then. Uncle Luke just really really recently put up a post saying you'd be crazy to vote for Trump after he said that BS about like, uh, uh, you know, black people liking him because he was indicted. He was like, and this guy knows Trump. So I just wonder what you make of the fact that you have now hip hop artists willing to associate their brand with him, knowing what we know about him. A million people dead from covid. You know, the things he did as president. Does it surprise you that people who are usually so brand aware would let their brand be associated with him now? You know, all those videos when people go to Trump rallies and they ask them ridiculous questions and then they give ridiculous answers that don't make sense, that don't comport with political reality. We see a lot of that with the rappers who are talking about why why they support Trump. Kanye said when he wears the hat, he feels like Superman. What does that mean? Sexy Red, very popular rapper this year, last year, said that she supports Trump because she appreciates the stimulus checks. Right. Joy, who was who was which party was the part Democrats. of getting us those stimulus checks? Yeah. It was it was Nancy Pelosi. Right. <laughs> it was, it was right. the Democrats. So she is the sexy red is giving credit to Trump for something that he did not do and that he opposed. But she does not understand. She doesn't sit around reading The New York Times or watching your show. So she doesn't understand. She knows when Trump was president, I got a check in the mail. I love that. Let's do that again. 
You know, and the thing is, I will give him credit on this, is that the marketing on that, he opposed the stimulus, but he put that letter in with the stimulus check so that people who got the physical checks in the mail thought he gave it to them. That was a genius marketing move. Maybe Biden maybe yeah. should do maybe that. It, it, you know what I mean? Instead of doing like border theater, like maybe that's the thing, is that people do respond to the idea of somebody doing something that impacts their lives directly financially, right? And that kind of is like the good politics. I think implicit in this conversation is this notion that the right wing is trying to spread, that more black men are going yeah. to the Republican Party and to Trump. And yeah. as you've said on this show, we have yep. seen about 15 percent of black men supporting the Republican Party since 1968. Always. Always. Right? We are and, not. And they're going to do it again. Change. And we need to talk about the six in 10 white voters that are going to vote for Trump. It's not the black. I'm telling you, all if all 14 percent of black men who vote for Trump did it again. That's not that's not the reason he would win. Um, Teray, my friend, thank you very much. I appreciate you. We'll be right back. Thank you. <laughs> Before we go, I want to thank everyone who has come out to support me on my Medgar and Murley book tour. Washington, D.C. showed up on Monday night at Politics and Prose with me and the amazing Michael Betchloss. And I am headed to one of my absolute favorite cities this weekend, New Orleans, NOLA. I will be at Baldwin and Company this Saturday at 4 p.m. Central. Grab your tickets by going to msnbc.com slash Medgar and Murley, and I will see you there. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.